So uh, let's zoom on then, this time to number 37, um, 37 of the 95. And uh, let's see what Luther has to say for himself to start with. So he says, uh, any true Christian, uh, whether living or dead, participates in all the blessings of Christ and the church, and this is granted to him by God, even without indulgence letters. Um, and so the modern translation of that uh, is any, tra- any Christian, alive or dead, can gain um, the benefit and love of Christ um, without um, an indulgence. Um, notice what Luther's saying here. It's, uh, it's granted by God. It's a gift. In other words, it's given by grace alone, which became, of course, one of Luther's great theological uh, motifs. Uh, that were saved uh, by grace, sola gratia, by grace um, alone. And uh, in the brown there, just as we looked at before, there's my paraphrase of the particular, um, uh, the, the one of the theses, which is uh, saying what's the, what's the essence of, of truth in this, the, the seabed of truth that's applicable uh, to us even today. And it's access to God uh, with Christ alone as your mediator is your new birthright and um, what God has done is brought, brought us close um, through the blood of the eternal covenant through, through Christ alone. So let's look at what Luther had to say of his own spiritual journey and here's a quotation from Luther's works volume 54 and he talks about uh, his own conversion, his move from institutional religiosity to having a personal and living relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And this is what he says. He says, For a long time I went astray in the monastery, and I didn't know what I was about. To be sure, I knew something, but I didn't know what it was until I came to the text in Romans 1.17. He who through faith is righteous shall live. Uh, So that reiteration is three times in the New Testament of the Habakkuk text. Uh, He who through... He who through faith is righteous shall live. And then he writes, I learned to distinguish between the righteousness of the law and the righteousness of the gospel. When I discovered the proper distinction, namely that the law is one thing and the gospel is another, I made myself free. And um, again, RT last night in his superb um, biographical overview of Luther's life referred to as his tower experience, uh, which was the point um, in his life where he, he, he came to know Christ for himself and have a personal relationship with him. We don't know the time of this precisely, or the date precisely, probably so, sometime after 1508, uh, Luther was staying in the Black uh, Cloister Tower in Wittenberg um, in Germany. And here's a little uh, bit again from his journal where he says, all at once I felt I had been born again and entered into paradise itself through open gates. Immediately I saw the whole of scripture in a different light. And so it echoes, it's got echoes, doesn't it, of Wesley's conversion, uh, when he says, I felt my uh, heart strangely warmed. I knew that Christ died for me and me alone um, as, as he came to that spiritual awakening, hearing Luther's preface, the preface of, of, uh, that Luther wrote to the book of Romans being re- read aloud in Aldersgate Street. So his tower, um, his tower experience. So the point, access to God with Christ alone as your mediator is your new birthright. We don't need to go uh, through any external mediation of, uh, of, a, of a priesthood um, because, of course, the, pr- the priesthood in the 
Old Testament hasn't so much been abolished but fulfilled in Christ. So uh, Christ is our great high priest. And so uh, the, the word priest, as it, as it occurs in the New Testament, is the Greek word hieros, and it's uh, never applicable to ministers of the gospel. It's applicable to, uh, to Christ. Well, two things, actually. Applicable to Christ. Christ is our, our great high priest. That's the hieros word. But also the priesthood of all believers, uh, that each one of us, um, as a priesthood of all believers, have access. As Paul said, uh, we can draw near with confidence uh, through the blood of the eternal covenant. And uh, the word that's uh, used for uh, uh, ministers in the New Testament, uh, the Greek word presbyteros, translated uh, pres presbyter or elder, um, and yet within the Catholic tradition, the word priest is used. And, and my own Anglican tradition, um, in the Henrican Reformation, they ret retained somewhat unhelpfully that term priest uh, rather than presbyter. So it's perfectly correct, historically at least, to say that I'm an Anglican priest, uh, but theologically, it would be much more appropriate, biblically, uh, to say that I'm a presbyter um, within the church. Access to God with Christ alone as your mediator is your new birthright. Okay, let's skip on then to number 54, uh, where Luther says this, Injury is done to the word of God when in the same sermon an equal or larger amount of time is devoted to indulgences rather, rather than the word. The modern translation, um, it is blasphemy, that the word of God is preached less than that of indulgences. And uh, my summation of this one uh, in the brown there, the primacy and centrality of Holy Scripture must be our reflected priority. Those were two great rediscoveries at the Reformation. We believe in the primacy of Scripture, that it comes before all else. It's, a, it's, our, um, it's what we look to for our source of authority. Uh, the centrality of Holy Scripture. But it must be a reflected priority. It's, it's no good just to say it. It must be a, ref a reflected priority in our liturgy, in our worship, in how we live our lives. With the 500th anniversary of um, the... Um, what happened in, in Wittenberg, there's uh, a proliferation of all things Luther, Luther biographies and all this kind of thing. Uh, but one of my favourite things uh, was this uh, play, I used to have play people as a boy, and there's this Luther, play people have produced this little play people model of Luther, and there, there it is, you can buy this. And uh, there he is with his quill in hand, and he's holding up the scriptures, and if, uh, it's even got some uh, writing on the little, the little play people book there, where it says, books of the Old Testament end, and the one on the right says, the New Testament translated by Dr. Martin Luther. So one of his legacies was to translate um, the scriptures from uh, the original Greek manuscripts into German. Uh, just, this, just recently I've been at Wycliffe Hall. Uh, I've not yet started there. I'm still on the staff of St. Michael Le Belfry. Uh, but I was, I'm, I'm going down during this term. And I met this uh, young guy who's 29 years of age called uh, Gernot. And Gernot is um, from Austria, from Vienna in Austria, and um, about 375 miles from uh, um, uh, Wittenberg. And I, as I often do, I asked uh, this guy, 29, he's come to study at Wycliffe Hall, Oxford, uh, for a year. I asked him his own uh, journey of faith, and it, it turns out this guy uh, was from a solid Catholic background, Aust Austria, um, the traditional uh, denomination of Austria is, is Roman Catholicism. And yet, a few years ago, he, he came from his Catholic background um, into a personal knowledge of Jesus Christ. And uh, I couldn't bring him uh, down uh, today, so what I did ask to do um, is if I could just record his testimony on my iPhone. 
so it's a kind of um, a bit rough and ready, but here it is. Here's uh, Gernot's uh, testimony from uh, Vienna in Austria. Hi, Gernot. Do you want to just uh, tell us a little bit about yourself? So my name is Gernot. I'm from Austria. I'm nearby Vienna. That's my hometown. Okay. And um, uh, traditionally, that's a Catholic country. Are you yes. from a religious background at all? Yes. My family is very Catholic. So my father is a very devout Catholic. And me and my parents, we used to go every Sunday to church. We prayed the prayers there. And I was very, very, very active in, the, in our church when I was a child. Till I was about 14, 15 when I fell away and became more of a punk and had long hair. So decided that faith was not for me. Okay. Uh, so how, having decided that faith wasn't for you, how did you come to Christ, the personal knowledge of Christ? Yes, um, because of my Catholic background was still very much in me from tradition-wise. So we bought a children's Bible and with the intent, like most Austrian Catholics have, just to have the children's Bible on our shelf yeah. collecting dust. And my daughter... So you were living, living with your girlfriend yeah, and you had a child? Yeah, I was living with yeah. my girlfriend and we had a daughter. She was born when I was 18 and my girlfriend yeah, was yeah. 17. And when she was five years old, my daughter, she just wanted to read this book every day. So she, we kept reading the book to her and she kept asking questions because she started to believe what was told in the children's Bible. She believed in Jesus, she believed in death and resurrection of Jesus and in God. And because she asked me questions, I had to answer her questions. So I started... Mm reading the children's Bible a little bit more by myself, try to understand scripture, try to read actually anti-Christian literature to answer her questions and show that this is not real and not true. Till at one point, answering the questions and just thinking about scripture and reading scripture, even from the children's Bible, just made me realize Jesus is Lord. And it just, at one moment, it just made like this and... I believe Jesus is Lord, and wow. I gave my life to Christ. That's amazing. It's like the, the penny dropped, yes. and the light, light came on. That's, that's wonderful. And uh, what difference has, has Jesus made to you, knowing Jesus personally? Well, it, it makes all the difference in the world. Obviously, it, it just changed me as a person because of my story, because I, I started out being a punk and being a very young parent that tried to prove to everybody that I'm, I'm actually very smart, I can do it, I can do all things by myself, and... Even my Catholic background, I tried to prove everybody that I'm good, a good person and living a lot of hypocrisy in my life and just having a lot of pride also in my life. And just Jesus changed me. He mm. changed my focus. He changed the way I, I act as a father. He changed the way I act as a, as, a, as a husband, like the love I have for my wife. Everything changed. And even because I, I realized the story of Jesus, yeah. I just wanted to share this story with people. So I started to, to read more about Jesus, learn more about yeah. Jesus and Reaching out to people, I was always a person who was very like, everybody should just stay to his own faith. Yeah. And I'm now just sharing that because it just yeah. overflows in you. That's wonderful. So uh, your girlfriend, you married your girlfriend? She's now yes, your wife? Yes, we are married now. And you've got a second just, child? We have a second child. We are married and now. And you're studying here at uh, Wycliffe Hall, Oxford University? Yes, so I'm, I'm studying because I would love to go into missions someday yeah. because it's just, it's just such a great thing he yeah. changed my life so I would love him to yeah. change other people's life and yeah. be a part of Jesus changing other people's yes. lives um, one final question and that as you're, as you're aware this is um, the 500th anniversary um, this month to do with um, when Luther made his protest at the yes. castle church door in Wittenberg with the 95 theses um, you know there are some Christians who say the reformation's over it's no relevance uh, for today um, um, is Luther's um, discovery uh, still relevant, and, uh, and why? Do you, if, if if so, why? 
I very much think it's very relevant still today because when I became a Christian, my father is, as I said, very devout Catholic. He really, he, he went even to like theological seminaries in the Catholic Church to better understand his Catholic faith. And when I became a Christian and I just started to talk with him a lot about the Bible and for him many, many things were totally foreign to him. Like when I talked about Ephesians 2 and being justified by grace through faith, it was extremely foreign to him. And even though my father is very devout, I, he has no personal relationship with Jesus. He has no this born-again experience, which we need. Mm. We must be born again. Yeah. So I believe it's very relevant because that's such a that's the core of, of, of our gospel. It's like God changes our life and we are known to him. And that's something I, I would love to people to know. And if we don't see the difference between being saved by grace through faith and not being saved by grace through faith, we, I think we take away from people that experience and the joy of getting to know God. Great. Gannat, thank you. It's uh, uh, wonderful to meet you and great to hear your story. Thank you very much. Great. So that's heartwarming stuff, isn't it? Just as he was sharing his testimony uh, with me just recently, um, I just sensed the Holy Spirit um, there in the conversation. My eyes sort of filled up with tears. An amazing story, isn't it? He's from this staunch Catholic background. His, his father's still a, a very devout Roman Catholic and uh, is at Mass regularly um, each week. Uh, yeah, he, f- he fell away a few years ago. Uh, so he was uh, living with his girlfriend. They had a, a child uh, together. And um, it was through reading a children's Bible, reading a children's Bible to his daughter. Um, that the light- so it wasn't even a, a translation. It would be a paraphrase at best in terms of a children's Bible. Uh, but actually reading that children's Bible to his, his young daughter, um, as I said, the, the penny dropped, the light uh, came on and uh, he came to, came to Christ. Um, and uh, such an exciting thing. And, um, and that's, in sharing that story, that's in, not particularly to um, single out Roman Catholicism in terms of for that kind of institutional nominalism. It can happen all over. I mean, so within my own denomination, within the Church of England, um, there's certainly... Uh, um, nominalism that occurs where I was a curate there was a a guy there who came to be the associate vicar and his testimony this is an Anglican church his testimony was that he got saved after he was ordained Uh, he went to one of the liberal Anglican colleges he he was a liberal priest and uh, he said uh, there's a home group in his his church Bill, Bill this guy his name is there's a home group in his church and he said someone in the home group in his church in the home group they invited this Pentecostal guy round, and, um, and he was sat there in the home group, hating every minute of it, he says. And then at the end, uh, um, the person who was leading the home group invited the Pentecostal guy to pray for people, and uh, he went round and laid hands on. And he said, he laid hands on Bill, and he was actually hating it, thinking it's terrible. But as that happened, he was filled with the Spirit, and, um, uh, and, and looking back, he would say he was converted. He wouldn't say, he wouldn't say it was baptism of the spirit he said it was conversion that actually he's, he, he was born again uh, in that moment and uh, not surprisingly after that his theology became more orthodox he left his theological liberalism and became orthodox he became bible believing and uh, it wasn't long after that that the, ch- the church drummed him out and so they used to like him before as a nice liberal vicar they used to like him uh, but actually they had a coup and got rid of him once he was born again so uh you know so these things happen in in all, all denominations and um and, uh, and it's good that clergy convert. I'm all, call me old-fashioned if you like, but I always think a converted clergyman is good for the work of the gospel. But there we go. Right. Anyway, moving on then. Uh, number 62. The true treasure of the church is the most holy gospel of the glory and grace 
of God. Or the modern translation, the main treasure of the church, should be the Gospels and the grace of God. Uh, my paraphrase of that, uh, the Gospel is the only thing the church has to offer. You know, so often um, we try so hard, don't, don't we, when we read the statistics about people going to church ever, ever diminishing and uh, denominations becoming extinct in the next uh, 10 or 20 years. We try ever so hard, and it, all, often we sometimes import anything but the gospel. You know, there are sermons that are more psychobabble than scripture. There are church services that are more to do with entertainment than worship. You know, sometimes we can even just focus on social action programs, and there's nothing wrong with that. I very much believe in um, not just proclamation, but demonstration. The gospel is outworked in terms of God's heart for the poor and the broken and the marginalised. But that could never, and that should never become a substitute for the gospel. And my experience sometimes is friends who've lost confidence in the gospel can sometimes then find it more comfortable to be involved in uh, social action programmes rather than the gospel. The, at the end of the day, the gospel is the, it's our sui generis. It's, it's our unique selling point. It's the thing that makes us the church. The gospel is, at the end of the day, the only thing that the church has to offer. And it was this rediscovery of um, what makes us right with God uh, not by works, but through faith in Christ. It was there all along in the pages of uh, Scripture, hiding in plain sight, so to speak. But that was Ruther, Luther's rediscovery um, of the gospel and therefore the God of the gospel um, that was seminal in not just changing his life, but actually changing the course of history. So here's a quote from Luther. When God's righteousness is mentioned in the gospel, it's God's action of declaring righteous, the unrighteous sinner who has faith in Jesus Christ. The righteousness by which a person is justified, declared righteous, is not his own, but that of another, namely Christ. And... Uh, uh, RT was speaking about that at length last night. The Latin phrase for that, uh, sola fide, by faith alone. Uh, not faith plus, but were justified by faith alone. That was Luther's amazing discovery. And um, in Reformed thinking, they sometimes talk about the five solas. Uh, sola scriptura, that's the Bible alone. Sola gratia, by grace alone. Sola fide, I've mentioned that already. Uh, faith alone. Solus Christus, Christ alone. And uh, soli Deo Gloria, uh, which is uh, for the glory of God alone. And um, I think um, the modern church is in danger of theological amnesia and forgetting these solas. And I sometimes say that um, if there was a sola that would typify much of the contemporary church, it would be this, sola pragmata. In other words, if it works, if it works, it's all about pragmatism. It's not about what the scriptures say. If it works, we're desperately in search of answers for church growth. You know, a book that says 10 ways to make your church growth. Sola pragmata. We need to forget sola pragmata and get back to some of these um, biblical solas mentioned behind me. Okay, number uh, 65. Uh, Therefore, the treasures of the gospel, this is Luther, the treasures of the gospel are nets with which one formerly fished um, for men of wealth. And the modern translation of this is the treasured items in the Gospels are the nets used by the workers uh, to catch people. It can really only be understood in relation to the one that comes after it. That's uh, thesis number 66. Um, and um, number 66, let me read it for us. It says this, the treasures of indulgences are nets with which one now fishes for the wealth of men. 
um, or in the modern translation, therefore the treasures of the gospel are nets with which one formerly fished for men of wealth. So this is um, Luther the comedian. He's actually trying to be a bit of a wit and raconteur here. What he's referring to is that the, the evangelistic task of the church has somehow become lost. It's become distorted. And what he's saying is, um, um, uh, therefore the treasures of the gospel are nets uh, with which one formerly, in the old days, fished for men of wealth, um, but the treasures of indulgences are nets with which one now fishes for the wealth of men. So in other words, it's, it's inverted. He's, he's, he's using a clever pun and saying what the church is more concerned with is the wealth of men uh, rather than trying um, to reach out to wealthy men. Obviously, he'd have included men, who are not, uh, men and women who are not wealthy as well, but he's just making a, a, a pun there. Uh, the essence of this one, in my paraphrase, is let's get back to the business of mission. Let's get back to the business of mission, of, of being a missional church, of being God-sent ones, of being ones sent out um, to seek and to save that which is lost, which was Christ's own messianic mandate. This is the heart of uh, what we're about as church, and it's wonderful, uh, it's glorious, and it's heartwarming. Let me just share to you a story just from uh, last Sunday. So last Sunday I was preaching at my own church, St. Michael the Belfry in York. Uh, we're a big st student church, uh, just under a thousand in the centre of York. We usually get one or two hundred students to our church. And this time of year, as you know, is Freshers' Week. And so the two, the two universities of York, York University, York St. John University, the students are coming to check us out. And um, so I was preaching last week and at the end of my message, it wasn't particularly an evangelistic message as, as such, um, but the, the gospel is there when we um, do expository preaching. Uh, but I, I threw out, as an evangelist, I threw out the net of the gospel. And uh, I said to a packed church, I said, look, is, if anyone here, um, you know, would like to give their life to, to Christ, and I did, did a prayer at the end of my sermon. I got people, you know, to bow their heads and raise, raise hands. And that night, there were this, last Sunday night, there were five people, five people uh, raised their hands to give their lives to Christ. Three of them, it turns out, were students. And uh, these students were not Christians. They'd just been brought... You know how it is? Uh, they're new in town, uh, feeling a bit lonely. They met, met with some Christians and some Christians. I'm going to church. Do you want to come? Um, anyway, afterwards, one of them came forward for prayer ministry, um, Ryan, uh, who's here. And I, I talked to uh, him a, a, little, a little bit about it just before I uh, prayed with him. And um, I, uh, first thing he said to me was this. This is just from last week. He said, oh, I felt it. That's what he said, I felt it. And I said, uh, what, what do you mean? He said, oh, in the last hymn, in the last hymn, he said, I, I felt it. I was, I just, uh, and what he was referring to was the Holy Spirit. In the last hymn, he sensed the Holy Spirit fall upon him. Again, gloriously, he didn't have the terminology, didn't have the language to describe it. And, um, and then I said to him this, I said, well, how long have you believed? Because as you know, a lot of people who become Christians, they may be theists, they believe in God before they become true Christians. Uh, born-again believers and I said so, you know, that's that's true for lots of people so I said how long have you believed in God he said only only half an hour and uh, and I said what and he said yeah I was I was an atheist you know got, got this morning I was an atheist and I said well what what uh, you know what changed things right and he said this in your talk he didn't say sermon he didn't have the language he said in your talk um, he said I was listening to you talk uh, and he said something clicked and I believed and, uh, and I thought well praise God again this is this is uh, the stuff Luther made his protest for, um, that actually the, the word of God um, itself can convert. And that's what happened in this guy's uh, case. Just hearing the word of God preached led to his conversion. And then he prayed the prayer. So obviously having believed, he said the penny dropped and I believed. 
And then, of course, I gave the prayer at the end, and he said, I said the prayer. And then in the worship, the Spirit, no one prayed for him, the Spirit of God fell on him. And so I said to him, I said, Ryan, can I just pray for you now? And he said, yes, you can. And uh, I prayed for him, laid a hand on him. And as soon as I prayed for him, I got the verse from uh, one of the Psalms where it said, God is the father of the fatherless. And I began to prophesy and say, you know, I just sense that you've not had a good relationship with your earthly dad, your biological dad. And uh, that's a gap for you uh, in your life of, of, of not, um, of, of, of the gap of a father. And it's as if God is saying to you, uh, you know, I'm the father of the fatherless. You know, I, can, I, I am and I will be. I want to be your heavenly dad. And um, anyway, I finished um, praying for him and he looked up with tears in his eyes and he said, Christ, he said. Uh, and he wasn't, he wasn't worshipping. Uh, obviously, again, he's a new Christian, you know. Uh, that's, anyway, so I told him off. I said, you know, we don't take the Lord's name as a swear word. And he's, oh, sorry, sorry, <laughs> sorry. Well, you were a bit of rebuke. You know, he's five minutes converted. He could do a little bit of a rebuke. Anyway, so sorry. But he said, uh, he said the, re the reason he, sa he said that, he said, um, I never, that's exactly right. He said, I never knew my dad. Uh, he said he, he was a distant figure to me. He said he was there, but he never had time for me. And he said, as a young guy, he said, I used to go to my granddad's house every night. My granddad was my dad, and I love my granddad. And he said he died this February, and I'm still grieving him. And, and with that, he began to cry. Began to, he began to be um, in tears. You know, let's get back to the business of mission. It's glorious. It's what we're called to, isn't it? Uh, Jesus Christ said, I've come to seek and save that which is lost. And we're called uh, to be co-laborers with him to bring in the harvest. Okay, number 68. Let's move on to number 68. Uh, in Luther's uh, thesis, he said, this, he said this, they are uh, nevertheless, in truth, the most insignificant graces when compared with the grace of God and the piety of the cross. So the modern translation is this, they, uh, that is to say the indulgences, um, he said, uh, are, the, are the furthest from the grace of God and the piety and love of of the cross and there it is in brown my paraphrase over the top nothing compares with God's grace shown to us in the cross and this was to become again one of the light motifs of Luther's theology of his thinking um, his theology of the cross and here's just a, a quote from uh, Luther's work uh, the cross alone is our theology if we were to summarise uh, what we're about as the people of God, it can be summed up um, in, in the cross. God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting humanity's sins um, against them. The cross alone is our theology. Okay, let's move on to number 78, uh, where Luther says this. He says, we say on the contrary that even the present Pope, or any Pope whatsoever, has greater graces at his disposal, that is... The gospel, spiritual powers, gifts of healing, etc., as it is written, and he quotes 1 Corinthians 12, verses um, 28. And the modern uh, translation of this, even so, the Pope possesses great gifts um, of grace. So what's, what's the quotation that he's citing there from the scriptures? It's to do with the gifts of the Spirit. Um, and in particular, Verse 27 of 1 Cor 12 says this, Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. And God has placed in the church, first of all, apostles, second prophets, third teachers, and then miracles, then gifts of healing, of, of helping, of guidance, and of different kinds of tongues. Paul, he's citing there uh, the gifts of the Spirit. So my paraphrase is this, you know, the church should have genuine, not counterfeit, spiritual power, so obviously Luther was talking about the counterfeit 
um, spiritual power that was to do with control and domination um, that, that he was addressing in his day. And he's juxtaposing that with the true spiritual power that he says must be accessible in Christ because the Bible says so. The church uh, should have genuine, uh, not counterfeit, spiritual power. Uh, this is where I work um, uh, in York. Um, who's, who's been to York here? Probably quite a few of you. Put your hand if you've been to, to York. Um, so the church on, on um, uh, the right there, of course, is York Minster. Uh, St Pete's York, as we call it. Uh, its official title is the Metropolitical and Cathedral Church of St Peter York. Anyway, we call it St Peter York. So the mighty minster, York Minster. Um, this church on the left-hand side is St Michael the Belfry, where I'm the theologian and missioner. And uh, let me just tell you one story. Last week, last year, rather, it was a busy summer. The main vicar, the senior pastor, was off on sabbatical. I was the acting vicar. And I was out in Minster Piazza, which is the bit of land in between our two churches, which is there. And there was a, a, a group of... Uh, young girls who um, must have been about 14 years of age who were from Holland. They were on a day trip from Holland, a school trip. They'd come over um, from, uh, from Holland to Hull on the boat and it was a whole long day trip uh, and they were doing the history of York in a day. And they stopped me and asked to speak to me and they said, they said to me, oh, we've got this survey for school, we've got this survey to do. Um, do you mind, could you, could you help us? And... Uh, uh, these are the, the girls there, about 14 years of age, 14, 15, something like that, uh, they were. And uh, so, they, so I said, yeah, I'll try and help. And they said, what is the cathedral dedicated to which saint? And I said, St. Peter. And they said, oh, what is the Viking name for uh, York? And I said, Jorvik. And, uh, and they said, uh, you know, what's the Roman name for York? I said, Ibukorum. Anyway, I answered all their questions. And they said, oh, good, we've done it. We've done, we've, uh, we've done, we had like 20 questions to answer all about York. And then I said, oh, good, can I ask you a question? And I said, do any of you uh, have any faith in God? And... Um, um, all of them said no. They said no. You know, Holland is, you know, a pretty secular country. Um, most of them said no. One of them said there's something there, but I'm not quite sure um, what it is. And then um, one of the um, girls who said that there was something there, there's, there's, um, I'm not sure what it is. I said, well, um, how about, could I just pray for you now? And, um, and I said, how about you can pray the atheist's prayer? So they said, the athe well, I said what's the atheist's prayer? I said, well, simply like this. It's God, if you exist, reveal yourself to me. And uh, so she said, yeah, I'll pray. I don't mind praying the atheist's prayer. So uh, she, she pr so prayed the prayer, the God, if you exist, reveal yourself to me. And then I prayed that God, I, I laid a hand on and prayed that God would, uh, would uh, in his own way, in his own time, um, make himself known. Anyway, she interrupted the prayer. She interrupted the prayer um, because she started speaking Dutch, obviously, to her friends, and uh, her hand, her right hand, was sort of shaking and, and in spasm, and she was saying something in Dutch that I didn't understand. So um, I said to her, what are, you, what are you saying? And she said, oh, uh, she said, when you were praying like that, I felt warm tingling down me, and she said, uh, and uh, my hand, she said, it's, it's shaking. And, uh, and I said, do you know what? And I said, do you know what that is? I said to her, and she said, God. So she knew, you know, I didn't need to, so do you know what it is? God, she said, the God she didn't believe in 10 minutes before. And so I said, can I just explain to you the Christian message? And they all said, yes. So as, simple, as simply as I could, I explained the gospel. And uh, she and two of the others wanted to give their lives to Christ. So not all five, but three of them. I, I, I prayed three of them gave their lives to Christ. It was, it was uh, amazing. Then uh, some, some boys came and joined the group. Two boys, in fact, joined the group. And they said, oh, we want to go into the minster, they said, but it's... Um, 20 euros to get in, so you've got to pay, you've got to, pay to get in. So I said, well, I can take you in free, because obviously being the priest next door. So I, so I basically, uh, I was, looked at my watch, I was supposed to be preparing a sermon for the midday communion service, by the way, it can wait. 
Uh, as it happened, I totally winged the sermon, but there we go. And uh, actually, I told this story in the sermon, which was probably better than what I was going to say. Anyway, so uh, I took them around York Minster, and um, I was in my clerical collar, as you can uh, see. And um, they thought, but they thought, they, then they said, um, I talked about my wife, and they, they were surprised about that, because they thought, thought they assumed I was a Catholic priest anyway, so I explained I was Anglican. So anyway, I took them, I took them around the Minster. We got to the very top of York Minster, inside, inside York Minster, and it was packed. There was the high altar there, and there's the um, altar steps. And um, there were two priests, canons, getting ready for communion. Two of the canons of the church priests uh, were getting ready for the midday Eucharist in York Minster, the cathedral. And there was a whole lot of school children who were in one of the choir stalls having a lecture. And um, when we were at the top there, um, the, girl who, the, the, the first girl who I prayed for, um, she was telling one of the boys um, uh, about what had happened. And the reason I could I tell is she was, she was simulating what happened. She was sort of twitching her hand like this. It wasn't genuinely shaky at this point. And she was speaking in Dutch, obviously. So I said, what are you, what are you, what are you saying um, to him? And she said, oh, I'm just telling him what happened, how you, how you prayed, and I got touched by God, and how I you know, gave my life to God. And um, so I turned to the young guy, also 15, and I said, uh, um, are you a Christian? And he said, yes, he was. And he, was. he said, my family go to church every week. We go to uh, a church, a Dutch Reformed church, he said, in, um, in, uh, near Amsterdam. And he said, but he said, I don't know anything. I've never heard of this uh, God touching people or the Holy Spirit in this way. And I said, well, would you like me to pray for you to be filled with the Spirit? And um, he said, yes, do. So basically there, it was on the, uh, it was on the steps of your minister. I just laid a hand on him. And I, uh, this is his, uh, here he is here. I just prayed for him, come Holy Spirit. And uh, this young guy, the power of God hit him. And he sort of, he got slain in the, in the, in the Spirit there in, uh, in your minister. And uh, now at this point, all the kids were watching in the choir stall. They were all thinking, you know, what is, what is uh, going on? I actually managed to ca catch him as he went down, which was good because it, could have been a nasty, nasty accident. Uh, two of the priests were getting ready for communion. One of them went past in her, her cassock, one of, the, one of the priests. She went past in her cassock with the chalice, and uh, they all know me from next door. And uh, uh, she said this. She said, we don't get that in very often in here, uh, she said. <laughs> and uh, anyway, thankfully, she didn't boot me out, Colin, so that was good. And then one of the other priests, one of the other canons went past, uh, and he just, and he wished, as, he went, as he went past with another piece of... Uh, uh, the communion thing. He said, oh, you can pray for me later if you like. <laughs> and uh, and uh, so they were pretty, you know, they're pretty, uh, pretty open uh, to this. But the point is this, I, you know, I'd love to say things like that happen to me all the time. They don't. Um, but it's a reminder, you know, the church uh, should have genuine, not counterfeit spiritual power. And Luther had this insight, um, even though he perhaps didn't walk in the fullness of it. Um, he knew it was true because he knew the scriptures were true. He said, we say on the contrary that, um, that in theory he's saying, the present Pope, indeed any Pope whatsoever, has greater graces at his disposal, that is the gospel, spiritual power, gifts of healing, etc. He's saying, why bother with the counterfeit temporal spiritual power, which is about domination and control, the political spirit, even though he didn't use that phraseology, when we could have the genuine Holy Spirit of God in us, working through us to extend uh, the kingdom. And that's pretty good news, isn't it? Okay, so, uh, so okay, number 90, this is what Luther says. He says, to repress these very sharp arguments of the laity by force alone and not to resolve them by giving reasons is to expose the church and the Pope to the ridicule of their enemies and to make Christians unhappy. So one of the things Luther is critical of here is the coercion within the religious hierarchy to squash dissent and not allow questions and not allow freedom of expression and freedom of thought. Here's the modern translation. To suppress people's questions 
uh, to expose the church uh, to what it is and to make true Christians unhappy. And I've put that in my paraphrase in the brown, as you can see, the church is foolish to suppress freedom of thought and speech. So Luther was a questioner. He was a great questioner. RT mentioned that last night when he was doing his pilgrimage to Rome. And he said, is this true? When he was, do it was engaged in what's called flagellation, he was a physically harming him himself in a way to tr uh, as a, a spiritual exercise, supposedly, of asceticism to, to try and bring himself closer to God. Is this true? He was a great questioner. And it's good uh, to be a questioner, isn't it? Here's a, a billboard that I like, this one. Uh, what if there were no hypothetical questions? So, good question, isn't it? And um, now, um, social media takes this to whole new levels, doesn't it? Where people have questions and debate and discussion. But actually, sometimes, if people's motive is not to arrive at the truth, but simply to have an argument, questions can generate more heat than light. And I, for one, don't use my Facebook account for political views or even theological discussion. I, I give testimony there, but theological discussion because there's so much argumentation that's out there. I saw this recently about Facebook, which I thought it really rang true in my own experience. I don't know if Facebook has ever made the lame to walk, but it has, beyond all doubt, enabled the dumb to speak. <laughs> so uh, there we go. Uh, anyway, one of the things that I would say about this and I'm running, I'm, running, I'm running out of time. This is, one of, this is one of the theses of Luther that is good, and yet there's potential pitfalls within it. And actually, the history of Protestantism these past 500 years has, to a large extent, fallen into this pitfall. So the point is this. The church is foolish to suppress freedom of thought and speech. Well, we all agree with that, don't we? How can the church suppress freedom of thought and speech? But actually, if we have freedom of thought and speech, what if we come up with conclusions that are not God's conclusions? Why is it that um, Protestantism has fissured and fissured over 500 years and gone from one denomination to the next? Why is it that the great reform traditions, whether it's the Calvinist Church of France, the Église Reformée, or whether it's the Lutheran Church of Germany, why is it now that these churches, by and large, are riddled with theological liberalism that denies the very scriptures that Luther fought his life to bring back to the church. I read theology at Oxford University uh, 22 years ago now, and one of my tutors was this man. Uh, this is a, he's a very distinguished um, Catholic theologian, Father Tom Wynandy. And 25 years ago, this man was um, head of house of Greyfriars College, one of the Catholic colleges in Oxford University, and uh, he was the he was the professor of patristics, that's the writings of the early church fathers. And um, Tom Wynandy, Nat Wynandy um, was, uh, he's written a book called, uh, he's, now, he's now back in America, he's written a book called Does God Change? And um, in the front of that book, Does God Change? It's an Oxford University book, and I read it 25 years ago. And his, the preface to this book, it's an academic Oxford University book, basically is a testimony and this guy he's a catholic capuchin capuchin friar and he basically says um basically in my studies of the patristics that's the early church fathers i realized there was a disparity between their experience of the imminence of god and my own experience so he said i sat at my desk and i asked god to give me their experience and i was baptized in the spirit and began to speak in tongues this is this tom is a charismatic roman catholic and when i met him um i, I read this and i uh, as a charismatic uh, evangelical, um, bear in mind he was my tutor and I was what, about 25, I, I, I said cheekily, I was a, bit, a little bit more audacious perhaps in those days, I actually said to him, Tom, I didn't call him Dr. Wynandy, that was 
probably bad enough in itself. But I said, Tom, I said, I hear you're a, a charismatic. And he said, yeah, I am. Yeah, he's American. He said, yes, I am. And he said, um, I said, oh, good that you're charismatic. I said, uh, I've got one question for you. If you're full of the Holy Spirit, why isn't God calling you out of the Catholic Church? Oh, I know, that's what I said. I'm, so, I'm not saying this is right. I'm just saying that's what I said as a 25. Anyway, quick as a flash, he said, I've got a question for you, young man. He said, if you're full of the Holy Spirit, why is, why is God not calling you into it? And uh, I feel good, touche. Obviously, you can see why he got to be the professor of patristics. But the point of me saying this is that Tom Wynandy's challenge to me was this. He said, Greg, he said, evangelicalism will always lead to liberalism. And this guy was four-square orthodox. And he was saying, evangelicalism, sooner or later will lead to liberalism. And his view was that the, the Protestants re replaced the magisterium with the church with individual reason, which is this point that I'm make, making earlier, the church is foolish to suppress freedom of thought and speech, and actually individual reason will eventually lead you away from God in terms of to theological uh, liberalism. Well, I've, I've, uh, that comment by Wynandy, Dr. Wynandy, has haunted me for years and uh, I thought, well, why is that? Because it seems to be true. It seems, it's not true in absolute sense, of course, but it, it seems to be true for huge swathes of evangelical Protestants who end up becoming liberal and actually believe in some ways less than the Roman Catholic tradition, which preserves truth in terms of its magisterium, in terms of its tradition. And uh, basically, I've come to a settled conclusion uh, with this, and, uh, and also the antidote, how we can stop it from happening. And Luther was my guide with this, so it's a good place uh, to finish up with. This is uh, Luther's famous quote. He says, Unless I'm convinced by scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. Uh, my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything, nor is it safe to do so. Um, here I stand, I can do no other, so help me God. So he's saying tradition has erred. But what he's not saying is that my own interpretation, my own views, is what I'm replacing the magisterium with the church with. Notice what he is saying uh, is this. I'm convinced by scripture. So it was scripture was the reason uh, that he judged uh, some traditions of the church to be found wanting. Um, I do not accept the authorities of popes and councils for they've, they've erred, is what he says. Uh, and he says, my conscience is captive to the word of God. And you know, that's the key. You know, if as evangelical people, our conscience and our reason is captive, submitted to God's word written, then we will stay within the mainstream of orthodoxy, which is God's wish for us. If, however, uh, we make uh, revelation, God's revelation, subject to our reason we're in real problems, and that's where uh, liberalism, theological liberalism, uh, comes in. Uh, Luther wasn't a great fan of uh, reason. He was uh, quite a colourful character in, his, in some of his uh, statements. Here's one. Reason is a whore. He says the greatest enemy that faith has. Uh, he's not against reason, but what he's, he's saying, he's, he's articulating in his, in his typical feisty way, what I've just said, which is reason must be subject to Holy Scripture, the primacy of Holy Scripture. And, and Luther again, God wants our conscience to be uh, certain and sure that is pleasing to him. This cannot be done if the conscience is led by its own feelings, but only if it relies on the word of God. Uh, so there's the antidote then to Protestant theological liberalism. Um, Luther replaced the magisterium 
um, of the church, the tradition of the church, with scripture, not with individualism expressed, expressed in my ideas, my thinking, my biblical interpretation. And we would do well to follow his example. Well, running out of time, so let's come into land with number 95 then. And thus be confident of entering into heaven through many tribulations rather than the, through the false security of peace. Uh, the modern translation is this, let Christians experience problems if they must and overcome them rather than live a false life based on present Catholic teaching. Um, Luther was prepared to die. In fact, he thought he would. And here's my paraphrase of this. It is, it is better to suffer for truth than to have an easy life capitulating to error. And there have been many people who have followed in Luther's footsteps, not least uh, one from history, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who himself was a Lutheran pastor, hugely inspired by Luther's own example, Bonhoeffer, as we, many of us know, was active in his opposition to Nazism. Uh, it was, he was discovered in April 1943. He was arrested. He was imprisoned by the Nazi regime. He was hanged by piano wire in Flossenburg on the express orders of Adolf Hitler just before the end of the Second World War. One particular line in his famous book, The Cost of Discipleship, proved prophetic for his own life as well as a reminder for all Christians down the ages of the sacrificial nature of discipleship. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. And so bring it all to land. I was uh, sat up in my hotel room last night, uh, tinkering with my talk. I always change it at the last minute. And I opened uh, in my hotel, the hotel room, I just opened the drawer. And what do I see? There's a, a Bible, the Gideon's Bible. And it brought it home to me. There, there, right there. There's the legacy of Luther uh, right there in terms of the scripture um, available for all people, any, any person of any religion or whatever who happens to be in that hotel room there's a scripture in the language of the people in, in, in English an English Bible in England and um, and uh, and we know that the, the gospel is the power of God to those that believe I, I dug this uh, prayer prayer out of Luther which I thought was fantastic which I think is like a kind of you might even say it's a kind of proto-pentecostal prayer because he's actually praying for the spirit and he says this look Lord an empty vessel that needs to be filled my Lord fill it Strengthen my faith and trust in you. In you I have sealed the treasure of all I have. In you is the fullness of righteousness. Therefore, I will remain with you. And uh, I thought it would be a great way of finishing this session if we all, those who want to, um, pray this prayer with me. It's effectively a, a prayer of surrender to God and asking God to fill us with his presence. We're empty vessels that we need to be filled. Fill us. God fills us with his spirit. So uh, let's uh, just pray then at the conclusion of this morning and this morning's session and let's pray this prayer penned by Luther uh, himself I'll start with uh, Heavenly Father Heavenly Father uh, look Lord an empty vessel that needs to be filled my Lord fill it strengthen my faith and trust in you in you I have sealed the treasure of all I have in you is the fullness of righteousness therefore I will remain with you Amen. And to quote Luther elsewhere, as he once famously said, if I think of myself apart from Christ from a uh, for a second, I'm undone. Great. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, just... <clears throat> as we conclude, just one thing in conclusion is there's a fantastic biography come out yesterday by... Who's heard of a guy called Eric Metaxas? Anyone heard of Eric Metaxas? Colin, have you heard of this guy? Eric Metaxas? Eric Metaxas, is, um, uh, he's got a t film show in America. He's written a, a brilliant biography of, Luther, of, of um, Bonhoeffer. Uh, and President Obama read his, his biography of Bonhoeffer. 
And he's, he's not a theologian, he's a journalist, very bright guy. And this book, uh, it's a huge 500-volume book, it's, it's a brilliant life of Luther, and it, it was embargoed until yesterday, just came out yesterday. And I basically thought, I want to read this for, as part of my preparation. And so I uh, wrote to him, Eric Metaxas, and I said to him, I told him I'm a seminary professor at Oxford, you know, just sort of, and I said to him, look, hey, uh, could you give me an advanced, you know, could you give me a manuscript? And, uh, you know, he wrote back and he said to me, yeah, I'll give you a manu I'll send you a manuscript. Uh, so I've got a manuscript on my Kindle. So I had an advanced copy of this. He told, he told me I couldn't give it to anyone else. And he said, and more than that, he said, not only I'll give you an advanced copy, so I've been reading this fantastic book, I say, um, out just yesterday. Uh, but he said, what's more? He said, I'm going to give signed copies to you and all the speakers at the conference. And so uh, I, I got them to be sent here. And so uh, Colin, to Colin Dye, God bless you from Eric Metaxas. So he's uh, given one to you. And uh, there's, uh, there's one for Leonardo. Is R RT's not around, is he, at the moment? There's one for RT here. And uh, Bishop Graham Tomlin. So he's, he's for all the, all the conference speakers. So uh, that's really kind, isn't it, of Eric uh, Metaxas. But I'd really recommend this. A fantastic read. The last chapter is about the legacy of Luther, so uh, uh, I commend it warmly. Great. Thank you very much.